Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians 13, the last chapter of this letter, what appears to be the fourth letter, although the second one that we have, but the fourth letter of Paul to the Corinthians. In the conclusion of this letter, buried in the text, verse 11, is three words, finally, brothers, rejoice. This is in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. This is just encouraging as a Christian. Think of all that Paul has gone through with this church. Think of all the trials and the hardships that he has um, illustrated in this letter to prove his apostleship, his legitimacy of authority uh, as an apostle to this church. Think of all the difficulty and the strife that's been going on in the church itself between the brothers. And he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. This is, for a Christian, the predominant attitude of life. may not be every day, but overall, when you look at life, because of Christ, the attitude is one of joy. Paul closes this letter that's filled with teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training with rejoice. He does the same in Philippians. There are two ladies who are fighting in Philippians, and he tells them, Be at peace, you two. Tell this woman and tell this woman to stop fighting. And right after that, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. Jesus said, When you're persecuted, you should rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. In John 16, he tells us that this joy given by the Holy Spirit is something that no one can take from us. We're told in Romans 5 that we rejoice even in our sufferings. It means basically that we see our present hardships and sufferings in light of our eternal inheritance and God's providence, and we rejoice. So rejoicing has been a theme through this letter. It's mentioned four, five, six, seven, seven times, maybe more. The old Princetonian Charles Hodge says, Joy and redemption, rejoicing in our union and communion with the Lord, is one of our highest duties. Blessing as infinite as these should not be received with indifference. So at the conclusion of this letter, Paul is basically saying, remember the gospel. In this letter, we see the gospel. And he's saying, rejoice. It's our highest calling. What's our primary purpose, our our chief end? to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, to rejoice in God. So that really is the overriding context of Paul's closing of this letter, the building up of the church and rejoicing in the gospel. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word preserved for you this morning by the Holy Spirit. This is 2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. 
For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or you, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer once again. Holy and almighty God, we know that these scriptures contain the words of life, the word of God, the truth, the revealed truth about you, about us, about your universe. We pray that you would open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're very simply going to go through the text and talk about discipline and restoration. Paul has written a letter that contains many, many corrections to this church. This church, uh, even in the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, we see so many problems. Confusion about the Lord's Supper. Confusion about... Marriage, confusion about um, spiritual gifts, and so on and so on and so on. In this last letter, he concludes with a strong push to be, in all of it, joyful. The work of the church often doesn't feel joyful, especially when there is conflict and these people were under intense conflict. But he says, rejoice. But also, he gives them direct and clear instructions. Don't be shy about restoration, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. But he starts by just warning them. He has been gentle with them to this point, but he could come and discipline. He could come and discipline. That's our first point to consider. I do find it uh, amusing to see that when I step back and I consider the word God's given me to preach, that often the lessons are not new lessons at all. They're things that we all learned, all learned in kindergarten, probably. Discipline and reconciliation are two of these lessons that you probably learned when you were very young. If you had parents who loved you, they spanked you when you did wrong. They corrected your behavior. This is biblical, of course. It's mostly for the good of the child. 
Secondary effect is that there's order and peace in the home. But you discipline children that you love. You spank them. I remember being spanked for tripping my brother and hurting him. My dad and mom both spanked me for that one. He was hurt, skinned his knee, something. I was sent to my room. I dreaded going to my room because I knew that mom was coming in um, with a spoon, with something, and then dad would eventually come in too. I would often try to just pad the area around my bottom. Multiple pairs of underwear, a couple pairs of shorts, like they didn't notice. But I knew that I was going to be spanked. I expected it. I had done wrong. And after the spanking, there was, there was some verbalizing that had to go on. Uh, I was taught that I had to verbalize my repentance. I had to tell my parents I was sorry for what I had done. And I couldn't be general about it. I had to specifically tell them, I'm really sorry for tripping Patrick. I should not have done that. I know he was hurt. Would you please forgive me? This is the verbalization of repentance. And then I had to demonstrate the repentance. And often, for an older brother, this was, this was very humbling. Go over and give your brother a hug. Give your brother a hug. Yes, you have to give your brother a hug. You have to make up. I didn't feel like making up. I had just been spanked. I just humbled myself to ask for forgiveness, but my heart wasn't always right. And yet they wanted me to at least go through the motions of making it right, to hug and make up. The entire aim of the process was for a restored relationship. It was for repentance. It was to teach me about God and his own forgiveness of us. And the whole process really can be called joyful in the sense that it was ordained by God for our good. Well, Paul says he's coming with discipline. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you in verse 1. And he goes right into his method. He says, I'm coming. I'll come in discipline and strength if I have to, in the power of God if I have to. I'm not going to circumvent the scriptures, which say that charges must be established by two or three witness, witnesses, but I will come in discipline for the good of the church and for that individual. This is a church that's been racked with accusation and doubt about Paul, telling him to defend his apostleship, questioning his teaching, questioning everything that he had done there, questioning, questioning his ministry. He says in verse 1, or sorry, in verse 2, that he would like to come in weakness, meaning he would like to come and not have to discipline. But if he does have to come in strength, he will. He's an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, commissioned by Christ. He has authority. He can hire and fire. He can send people away who reject his correction. But he says that he will establish every charge with two or three witnesses, as is required by law. The principles of God will govern his discipline, if it's required. He states that uh, they will then have the proof, in verse 3, once you see me come in authority and discipline, the apostolic authority of Jesus Christ, you'll know that the power that I have is real. It's a spiritual power. He then goes to show that Christ, in verse 4, was seen as weak by those who crucified Him. He was crucified on the cross in weakness. 
And yet the reality is he still possessed the power. Even in the crib, in the manger, he was holding the universe together by the word of his power. This is Jesus. He looked weak in his humiliation, but in power he would step up to glory. Paul says, I similarly may look weak to you, but if I have to come in discipline and in power, I will. I'm strong in Christ. By way of application, I want to just remind you of the three marks of every church. Every church preaches the Bible. Every church administers the sacraments rightly. And every church applies church discipline in a loving and helpful way for the building up of the body. Why is that? Because the church really has the responsibility of maintaining its membership. Who is welcome into membership? Who is not meeting the standards that Christ has laid out for membership in the body of Christ? And ultimately, who must be disciplined? This is the church's responsibility. It's for the good of those who err. The goal is restoration. The goal is a heart that sees sin and runs back to Christ. But the threat of removal from fellowship is ultimately the ultimate discipline that the church really has. So whether the charges, we we use the rules in Scripture when we apply discipline as a church, whether the charges or accusations are made against the pastor or the officers or any church member, the Bible gives us guidance. Starting in Deuteronomy, there must be two or three witnesses. And this principle is clear throughout the Scriptures. So this is interesting, isn't it? If you think about it, God would rather have some offenders go off without any discipline because there's only one witness than have one witness be able to absolutely bring charges against anyone in the congregation. Two or three witnesses are required. And this is a mercy. Because of the wickedness of the human heart, this is a great mercy. Certainly, we can get around this. We've, we've seen this in the Scriptures as well. When Ahab wanted... Uh, a garden, he convinced some people in the city to lie. Two or three witnesses rose up and lied about the man who owned the garden. They killed him, and then Ahab took it. But still, this is for the protection and the building up of the body, the preserving of the peace and the purity of the church. Discipline in the church is an important part of being a church. If you look in Matthew 18, would you just turn over to Matthew chapter 18? This is where Jesus actually talks about the church and talks about what discipline should look like or correction should look like. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first thing you do when you've been offended is you go to that person and you talk to them face to face. That's the first step. You don't talk about it with anyone else. You don't go and try to to see if anyone else has experienced the same thing. You go to the person. This is for the health of the church. You go and you, you resolve it face to face if possible. 
you gain your brother. This is the goal. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is usually when the elders of a church begin to get involved. You tell the elders, I think we need to go to this person. He's whatever the sin is. He's living openly gay lifestyle, or he's living in adultery, or whatever the thing is. So the elders would go as well. Discipline hasn't started. The discipline process maybe has started, but there's been no discipline. You go to the person, and it's not explicit that this is referring to the elders, but that's typically how the church has handled this scripture. The elders go to the person, and they, they try to establish the charge. If he refuses to listen, in other words, he's unrepentant, tell it to the church. Then it goes to the church court. In our church, it's the session, the elders. If it's a charge against the pastor, it's the presbytery. Those are my elders. You take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Christ says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, he's, he's no longer part of the fellowship. He's cast out. And then Christ says some important things. He says, truly. Truly is an important word. Truly. In other words, exclamation point. Truly. I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking about this process of discipline. In other words, he's with us. He's, he's empowered the elders of a church to apply discipline in a loving and prayerful manner, but he's also given us wisdom to apply discipline as required. So much so that whatever the church does on earth, he does in heaven. We have the authority of heaven. He says, I say to you again, if two or three of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Christ is actually just, this is the context of church discipline. He's identifying himself with the elders. And he's saying what they do, I'm there with them. I'm on the court. Certainly there's abuse in churches, and certainly these things can be abused. But for a prayerful session, as you have, Jim and Jerry and myself, for a prayerful session, you know that discipline will be handled lovingly and justly when required. So that's the process of discipline. Paul says he's going to use that process generally when he comes in power if it's required. The church has the power to bind and loose on earth when they apply discipline, uh, and Christ is right there with them. Paul is coming to do that if he's required to do so. So the question, I believe, the, the obvious question for us as a church that believes the New Testament, that believes the Scriptures, is why aren't there more churches that take seriously the responsibility to discipline? Well, we know the answer. It's just hard. Who likes that? Who wants to go to a church where you're a member and you're accountable? You're accountable to the other members. You're accountable to God. It's much easier just to go into a church where you can be anonymous. There's 3,000 members. I just sit in the back and then I leave. Well, certainly you're not really in a church if there's no accountability, if there's no membership. But the reason why there is very little discipline in in the churches in America is because it's just hard. It's difficult the leaders of the churches would have to offend people. They would have to put God above 
friends and family and culture. It's very difficult. For this reason, the church is to pray for its leaders, pray for the elders, not to be weak or fearful, but courageous and strong, and to seek to please God rather than man. Paul is coming in strength, and he's not afraid. If he's going to have to discipline, he will. The second point is that he throws the accusations that were leveled at him back on the people in the church. This is in verse 5. He, he tells the church to examine and test themselves. Examine yourself, he says, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Remember, these people have been accusing Paul of not being an apostle. And he refuted all of their accusations. He proved through his lifestyle, through his ministry, through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, that he was indeed called an apostle by Jesus Christ. And now he puts it back on them. He says, you've been accusing me. Now I want you to examine yourself. You've examined me. Examine yourself. Prove that you are in the faith. Test yourself. He says, if Christ lives in you, you'll pass the test. Like, really? That's true. It's true today. If Christ lives in you, you'll pass the test. This is a call, really, that extends even today. Often in our church, we take time during the confession of sin. We examine ourselves. We take time in in silent prayer during the service because we want to examine ourselves. We don't want there to be any dark corners of sin in our lives. We don't want to have a false faith. Ultimately, that's what Paul is driving at. Is there a false faith in your heart? Do you have head knowledge that just makes you think because you come and you do certain things and you you occasionally come to church that you have a real faith in Christ? He says, examine your hearts. Examine whether or not to test yourself to see if you're really in the faith. What do you really trust? What do you really believe? What do you really live for? Is it pleasure? Is that what motivates you? Or entertainment of some kind? Or just your own comfort? Is that what drives your decisions throughout the day? Or is it your family? Is that the one thing that you will never deny? Come hell or high water, I will never deny my own family. Regardless of Christ's call to supremacy? Or is it money or possessions? The idols that could be in your hearts are numerous, too numerous to name all of them. But we are to examine ourselves to make sure that Christ reigns on our hearts, the thrones of our hearts. First John gives us, I mean, the, the practical tests to examine yourselves are found all through Scripture. First John gives us three practical tests. First John 5.1, we're told that we should have a living faith in Jesus Christ. We need to believe. Right? When we come to Christ, we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a living faith in Christ. In 1 John 2.29, he tells us that we'll have a righteous life. There'll be fruit. There'll be obedience, as Christ would say. There'll be fruit of our repentance. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces fruit. So if you don't see the fruit, that's an examination that has to happen. 
And thirdly, 1 John 3.14 tells us that we will love other believers. We'll have a love for the body. A love personally for the body. A love corporately for this body. You'll have a love for the body. That's from outside yourself. It's a foreign love. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. So you'll believe, you'll repent, and you'll love the believers, the, the brothers. Examine your faith, brothers and sisters. Examine. Test yourselves. It's hard work, and it may not happen just in a moment. This may be where the Holy Spirit starts stirring you up and wondering, am I really in the faith? I don't seem to have any desire for Christ. I have no desire for the Word. I have no desire for prayer. I just come to church occasionally or faithfully. Examine your faith. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ alone, then it may be a false faith. And there's no danger in examining your faith. There's no danger in this at all. The Scriptures encourage you to do it. You should do it. And what if you're unsure? Well, go to God. Run to Christ. Remember the Gospel. Whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, running to the Gospel, running to Christ is always right. Run to Christ. But Paul says he's hopeful that they will not have failed the test. This is verse 6. I'm hopeful that you, you find out that we have not failed the test. In other words, we've taught you the, the truth. We've taught you the gospel. And we'll see this when you do what is right. I want you to do what is right, not so that you um, kind of validate my ministry. I want you to do what's right because I want you to be right with God. Verses 6 through 8. Paul's genuinely hoping that all are going to pass the test. He loves these people dearly. Again, remember all that he's been through. He's been through a lot with these people. And he still loves them. He wants them to have a sincere faith. He doesn't want any of them to perish. That's the whole reason a pastor or a preacher would tell his congregation, examine yourself. Paul doesn't want his people to perish. And only you know what is in your own heart. He says he can only tell, talk about the truth. The truth is what drives him, meaning the gospel, the scriptures. As we examine ourselves, we go to the scriptures. In verse 9, he says what he desires is their restoration. This is what we pray for. Restoration. Those who have been disciplined, those who have been Accusing Paul, those who have been uh, disrupting the church with false teaching. He doesn't want them to be disciplined. He wants them to be restored. He wants to use his authority, he says in verse 10, for the building up of the church and not for the tearing down. You know Paul is a humble man. This is a, a theme that's come recurring over and over in this letter. He's a man who himself has been put down by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has disciplined him and made him humble. And he's coming to these men, telling them, in humility, I will use my strength if I have to, but I would, I would prefer that you repent. The church's health is the priority for Paul, building up the body. Not his own building up, but building up the body. Remember in the 
previous verses, he said, I, would, I desire to spend and be spent for your sake. He's, he's going to live his whole life for the sake of the church. And he wants their restoration. This Greek word means to be put in complete order or perfection. He wants them to be put in order again. He wants them to be restored from all doubt and confusion and contention and false teaching and accusation that's been going on. He wants restoration. So you were already in Matthew 18. If you would look again at Matthew 18, right after, right after these verses we read, Matthew 18, we read 15 through 20, where Christ talked about discipline, correction, bringing a charge to an offending brother. Right after that, he talks about forgiveness. Peter said, how often do I have to do this thing where I go to them and forgive them? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. In this story, he said there was a king who had slaves. One slave owed him 10,000 denarii. So just one denarii is 20 years wages. 20 years, that's one. This slave owed the king 10,000. In today's dollars, it's, it's an astronomical sum. It's $10 billion. So a slave owes a king $10 billion. The point is, he's never going to pay that back. And he begs the king, please forgive me. And the king says, I forgive you. And then the same person goes to his brother who only owes him three months' wages. And he says, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to throw you in jail. Sorry, not denarii, 10,000 talents. Regardless, this, the principle remains. He says to the, to the other slave who owes him only a little bit of money, I'm going to put you in jail. The guy says, please forgive me. He says, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. So Christ tells this story because that's wicked to, to remember that we have been forgiven by God of something much much greater than $10 billion. It's an infinite sum that can never be repaid by us. So for us to receive that forgiveness and then not show love and kindness and restoration, a spirit of restoration and forgiveness toward our brothers, is wicked and evil. So Paul is saying, I want there to be a building up, a restoration in the body. Not this unforgiveness, not this bitter dissension that's been dividing the body for so long. And then he closes the letter in verse 11 by just a series of commands, of imprecatory, not imprecatory, of imperative commands. He says, aim for restoration. This is your aim. You're shooting an arrow straight to the bullseye of restoration. This is what you're aiming for. Comfort one another. So these are people who have been fighting, right? He's saying aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. In 2 Corinthians, in the same letter in chapter 5, he says how this is possible. In verse 4, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Well, he's really offended me. Well, he's, he's really hurt me in this way. Okay. Let the love of Christ control you. 
Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. It controls us when we consider the gospel. Why? That those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. In light of the crucifixion, the resurrection, the wrath of God that Christ took for us, we shouldn't be like the unforgiving servant, the unforgiving slave, who says, yeah, I receive all of God's forgiveness for all of my wickedness, but I'm not going to forgive you because you said this mean thing. No, Paul says, aim for restoration. Agree with one another. Live in peace. So he's holding up before them these two, these two things that may be in tension, but not for Paul. Discipline is coming, but I also want you to aim for restoration. This is Paul's goal in closing this letter. How do we aim for restoration? How do we agree with one another? Live in peace. Well, we let the love of Christ control us. This means that we will be very cautious about any accusation that might cause dissension in the body. This means we're careful with our tongues. Even in our, our thoughts, we're careful with our thoughts. You know that your thoughts can take you down to a road of bitterness and offense. If you just ponder on something and you grind on it, it will eventually affect your heart and your words and your deeds. But if you know the deceitfulness of your own heart, if you know the forgiveness that God has made available to you, then you will have the humility and the meekness of Christ. Paul said he's coming to them in meekness and gentleness in chapter 10. Sorry, in chapter 12. He's coming to, this, to them in meekness and gentleness. And this is the way of true believers. It's watching out for the attacks of the enemy, the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? Brothers and sisters, in this church, in every church, the ultimate struggle is against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that hate you, hate every one of you, hate your family, hate your marriage, hate your children, hate your parents, hate this body, hate your elders, hate your deacons. So we're not unaware of Satan's schemes. We... We do what Paul says, and we strive to agree with one another. Again, I'm thinking of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. There's these two women in the church that are bitterly fighting. And Paul says, tell them to agree with each other. Like that sounds nonsensical, doesn't it? They're fighting for a reason. And he says, okay, stop. Tell them to agree. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's placing Christ above yourself. He also wants them to comfort one another for the same reasons. They're wounded. They need comfort. When I arrived, many of you were already here in this church. It was a time of bitterness and dissension before I arrived. And when I actually got here, uh, one of the very first session meetings, I'd been praying for months. A number of people had left, and um, the people that were still here, we're just wounded. And I told the session, I think our focus must be just on comfort, the comfort of God's Word. So for a few years, that was our goal, was the Word of God, just preaching the Word of God and letting the Word of God provide comfort, seeking for restoration and for love, for comforting each other, for seeking peace,
seeking the good of the brothers. And he wants them to aim for restoration. And this is also, he says, to be seen practically. It's like when my parents told me to go hug my brother. It's like, I don't want to hug my brother. But they made me do it. Paul gives another command. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So why did my parents make me go hug my brother? Because kids have to do what they're told, first of all. But secondly, because children are are made to outwardly obey the rules of the house before their hearts are ever changed. You don't tell a child, when you want to start obeying dad from the heart, then I'm going to just make you obey. No, you tell them to obey dad, and you pray that God changes their heart so that they would do it with a willing attitude. That's part of their training. You do the outward thing first, even if your heart is not in it as a child. We don't do it backwards. Well, Paul seems to be, you know, Paul's already told the church that he feels like a parent to them in the last chapter. So it sounds like he's telling them, you guys have been fighting. Make sure you greet each other with a holy kiss. Not just a a greeting, right? A greeting would be greet each other with a kiss. He says a holy kiss. In other words, this is part of your fellowship in Christ. Today we don't kiss in the church. It would be like shaking hands or giving a hug. This is part of what we do. We outwardly show what we inwardly should be feeling. Even though we may have problems with brothers and sisters, we still pursue them, not just in our hearts, not just in our thoughts, not just with our words, but we pursue them. We look them in the eyes. We give them a holy kiss, a handshake, a hug. Paul takes the same approach. He tells them, you have to start Loving each other practically. Give each other a holy kiss. Do it. Don't ignore each other any longer. Pursue peace. You know, that's one of the first things you know in any relationship that someone is upset. Right? They stop wanting to. I know when Mary Kay thinks I've done something. I probably have. But she can't help it. But not want to be with me. She doesn't want to touch me for a while until that, that, that relationship is restored. And then even when it is restored, it's still difficult, but now we must begin holding hands again. Now we must begin acting like we love each other again. Paul's saying the same thing. I know it's been difficult in this church. You've been holding on to offense and bitterness And I've seen it because you don't even look at each other. You don't touch each other. You don't love each other outwardly. And I'm telling you, greet each other with a holy kiss. Do it. This is part of your aiming for restoration. Don't be mean, basically. Don't avoid each other. Go after each other. The person who's offended you, you pursue them in love. And he closes wonderfully with really what will be our benediction today. He talks about love and peace. In verse 11, he says, The God of love and peace will be with you. Again, this is a church that's been in turmoil. They've been in upheaval. And he says, God of love and peace will be with you. Christ will be with you. Despite the trials you faced, Christ will be with you. That doesn't mean discipline will not come. Often the most loving thing you can do is discipline someone in love. But God's love and peace will be with you. And he closes with the benediction 
that many churches have used for centuries to close a worship service. As you aim for restoration, remember that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. First notice that this is a Trinitarian benediction. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The entire Godhead is worshipped and adored in every one of our church services. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Holy Ghost. Usually this is all directed at Christ, and this is right. But ultimately, Christ, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are together to be worshipped and adored. The whole Godhead is responsible for your salvation. You should remember that. And he explains, Jesus came in grace and paid the penalty for your sins. You received a wonderful gift that you did not deserve. This is grace from your precious Savior. He took the wrath of God that you rightfully deserved and gave you a righteousness that you did not deserve. And this was all grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But also the Father in love predestined you for adoption to Christ. This idea that God is is the angry God, while the Son is the loving Son, it's all bonk. God in love predestined you for adoption. God in love sent His only begotten Son. From time immemorial, He set His love upon you and sent His Son to save you. This is the loving God that we serve. The Holy Spirit also was sent by the Father and the Son. He came down and regenerated your heart. He gave you that faith that you need. He replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He gave you a clear view of your sin and your need of a Savior. And He presently lives in you. Because of the triune God, we have joy in this life. Because of the triune God, we can have confidence as a church as we seek to correct sin. The session, the elders can have confidence that God is with them. Because of the triune God, we have joy in this world. Because of a triune God who saves us, we can rejoice. Let us pray. We thank you, God, that you have given us your precious word, the Holy Scriptures. All of Scripture is useful. All of Scripture is necessary. We pray that we would hear this word, that if any word was not from you, that it would be quickly forgotten, but that all these words that reflect the truth of your Scriptures would be received with joy, would be embraced, that Christ would be magnified in His Word, that we would never forget the price that was paid by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this would produce a joy in our lives, even in the most difficult circumstances, that we would be able, by the power of your Spirit, to aim for restoration, for comfort, and that you would be glorified in that as well, in this body of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.